Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. If you're a visitor, we would like to make you feel welcome and have you come back and join us at any time you have the opportunity. Um, when I was originally asked to speak this Sunday, I didn't really know what I was about. I asked them if there was anything particularly they wanted me to talk about. They said, well, talk about whatever you want. I go, well, I've done that the past three Sundays. I think I've, three times I've talked, I think I've done that enough. But I noticed it was right before Christmas, and I'm like, well, I don't want to give a traditional Christmas sermon. That's kind of a layup, I guess. I don't know, but I really didn't want to do that because I think we've done that quite a bit. Well, I was listening to the radio while I was at work. As you know, as most of you know, I drive a concrete truck, so I spend a lot of time listening to different stuff. And normally when Christmas music comes on, I change the station. I really don't like Christmas music. It's not, not, not my cup of tea. Uh, it's not something that, that I necessarily get into, but at this point I was driving down the road and I was doing some work and we were doing what we call tailgating where I'm in the cab driving back and forth while I'm doing concrete. So I really couldn't change the radio at this point. And a Christmas song came on. And it's a Christmas song I've heard of, but it's not one that I really knew a whole lot about. And I started listening to it and it Starting uh, setting some ideas off in my head. So this is what happens when I start thinking, and you may say don't start thinking anymore, but this is what happens when I start thinking. So well, let's talk about what child is this. Now, if you, uh, what, if you haven't heard the song, maybe you don't know a whole lot about the song. It is in this book. Um, I believe it's page 952 in the book. Yeah, it is page 952 in the book. So if you want to kind of look at it, I'm not really going to go through the lyrics. Um, but it can't, what, what it's asking about is, well, who is this child? What's this child do, doing here? Well, what's this child doing here that's going to do all these great things? Why is it in this manger? So what we're going to answer today is the question that this song is basically asking. That is, who is Jesus? And why is Jesus important to me? Who is Jesus? You know what? We're a lot of different things. I'm a dad. I'm a son. I'm an employee. I drive a concrete truck. We all wear a lot of different hats. We do different things to a lot of different people. There's no one thing that defines everybody. Just like that, there's no one thing that really defines Jesus. We're not even going to get into everything that Jesus was or who he was or all his traits. We're just going to really scratch the surface here. Because there's so much involved. There are three, three areas I think we need to look at and know who Jesus was, to know who Jesus was. Number one, he is God. There is no debating that. Jesus was God. The scriptures clearly point that out, and if you need to see that, we're going to go through that in a minute. But Jesus was God. There is no doubt about that in my mind, that Jesus was God. If we look in John 1 and 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you look up in John 1 and 1, it says, In the beginning the Word was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So here we see the Word became flesh, but in the beginning the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And if, we know, if, you, if you know Jesus became flesh, that means Jesus was the Word. So the Word was God. So Jesus is God. There is no debate in that fact. People want to debate that fact. They want to say, oh, Jesus was just a prophet, or oh, Jesus was just a good man. No, that's not the case. Jesus was God. He was a deity. If you look in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, 
and becoming in the likeness of men. Not only what Jesus got, he didn't feel it was robbery to be equal with God. You know, a lot of you know my dad. I'll tell you, there's not a whole lot of times I've grown up I felt equal. That just didn't happen. We knew about how the food chain worked in the house. We were not equals. And my dad would have thought it would have been robbery if I thought I was an equal. I guarantee you he would have thought that. But Jesus said, there would be no robbery in my place if I was an equal with God. Because he was. He was deity. Now, the balances are uh, shifted a little bit, but I still don't feel like I'm equal with him. But that may be just because it's father-son thing. But Jesus said, there would be no robbery if I was equal with God. Because he was God. He wasn't a good man. Well, he was a good man. But that's not all he was. He wasn't a prophet, just a prophet. He was a living embodiment of God. He is the Prince of Peace. You know, this song gets thrown around a lot this time of year. Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace. And I think we kind of misunderstand what the Bible was talking about here. I'm going to try to point that out here. If we look in Isaiah 9 and 6, for unto us a child is born, unto the son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now where the confusion comes in is what kind of peace are we talking about here? Because if you hear how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 10, 34, and 39, you might think there's a little bit of a con con contradiction going on. Let's look at this. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against father, father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me, and he who finds life shall lose it, and he, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's usually two contradictory things. He's a prince of peace, but he didn't come to bring peace? Well, let's look at the way we think of peace and the way God thinks of peace. Now, I believe there are certain things he does where we can have a more peaceful life on this earth. And that's about what he came to do. As a matter of fact, that's what he says. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. You know, that's a big qualifier. I did not come to bring peace on earth. There's always going to be wars, rumors of war. There's always going to be tribulations in this life. He didn't come to stop all those. That's never what he came to do. Well, what kind of peace is he wanting to bring to us here? What kind of peace did he bring? Well, let's look at this and look for a second. Let's look at Romans 5 and 10. For if we were enemies, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies of God. He came to bring peace between mankind and God. And you know what? The enemies of God in the Old Testament didn't fare too well. If you want to see how God treated his enemies, you can look it up and you can see it didn't, all, it didn't work out well for them a whole lot of the time. Actually, it never worked out for them. Sometimes he just delayed the punishment a little bit, hoping they would turn around, but it never worked out well if you were an enemy of God. He came to bring peace between mankind and God. And there was a reason we couldn't have peace with God. But through his death, now we can. Now, I'm not saying there, there's not certain things that you can do in this life to have more peace. I'm not saying that. My dad gave a sermon on that when he was here. I believe there are certain things that teach, that teach you how you can have a more peaceable life down here. But there's never going to be true tranquility and peace like there will be in heaven with God.
on this earth. That's just not going to happen. It's, um, it's, incap- it's impossible. My dad says, you want to see a good fight, just let the group of people keep growing and growing and growing, and the fight will get better and better. <laughs> because it's just impossible down here to have true, lasting peace. But we can have peace between us and God because of what Jesus did for us, and then one day enjoy a place that is truly peaceful and truly tranquil, where we don't have to worry about fighting and torment and anything like that, any of the weather, whatever you consider torment. You know, sometimes outside, I don't like being out there pouring concrete when it's 22 to 32 degrees, but we got to do it every now and then. And to me, that's pretty tormentful. I don't like doing it. It's something I really don't enjoy doing. Up there, there's not going to be any concrete pouring going on in 20-degree weather, I hope. Because that is not something I enjoy. But it is part of the job, so I do do it. But he didn't come to bring peace on this earth. He came to bring peace between us and God. Finally, he is our Savior. You know, let's look at this. In Luke 2 and 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know what you have to have to have a, to need a Savior? You need to have something to be saved from. There's no need for a Savior. There's nothing to be saved from. I don't have to save my kids from something that's not there to hurt them. If there's something not there and I just grab my kids and go, oh, get away, I'll hurt you, they're going to think I'm crazy. They might think I'm crazy anyway, but they'll definitely think I'm crazy if I do that. There is no need for a Savior. There's nothing to be saved from. Well, what do we need to be saved from? Let's look at this. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. We need to be saved from something. Saved sinners. We have all sinned. You remember that verse, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Well, if you're a sinner, you need to be saved from your sins. That's why we needed a Savior, because we committed sin, and we put that sin between us and God, and there was nothing that could move it. So the reason there needed to be a Savior is because of the fact that I don't do, always do what I'm supposed to do. I don't always do the right thing. Sometimes I do the wrong thing. Sometimes I don't want to do the right thing, so I do the wrong thing anyway because I really didn't want to do the right thing in the first place. I can justify it in my mind. You know, it's amazing how you can justify things in your mind when you really don't want to do it. Or when you really want to do something, how you can justify how it's okay. But we needed to be saved from that sin, and that's why Jesus had to come. That's why we needed a Savior. If we didn't have sin, we wouldn't need a Savior. Because God can have no part of sin, and since we sin, God could have no part of us. So we needed to be saved from that sin. So if we could be perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior. There would be no reason to have a Savior. But unfortunately, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. We all do things we shouldn't do. If we look in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only did he come to save us, he didn't do anything wrong to where he deserved to have to do it. He was perfect. You know how I said nobody's perfect? He was perfect. He did nothing wrong. He did no sin. But the fact that he did no sin, he was willing to become sin for us. You know, I, I know Matt loves foreshadowing and things like that in the Old Testament. We have what we call a scapegoat. 
a goat that's totally innocent. And every year, the children of Israel would put their sins on that goat and run it out of town. The goat had no sin. But it took on the sins of the people to get it off the people. This is what Jesus did for us. He, didn't, he wasn't guilty of any sin. But he took our sin and took it away from us and put it on himself, just like we do with that goat. You know, the scapegoat has become so popular, it's used in common culture all the time now. Somebody that was innocent but got blamed for something that didn't happen, that they didn't do. Anytime somebody gets in trouble for something they didn't do, they go, oh, they just scapegoated him. You know, I'll give an example. I love this story. I know I've probably given it here before. You may be getting tired of hearing it. But there was a book that the uh, schools, uh, stories from a one-school, one-room schoolhouse. And I've given this a couple times, uh, at least one time at the table, I know, but I think it fits here. There was this teacher, and he was a, pre back then most of the teachers were the ministers of the town. And he was kind of a rough dude. And there was a problem with people stealing, going on stealing lunches in the schoolroom. So he decided he was going to put an end to it. He said anybody that was caught stealing food was going to get 10 swats with the swat, with the paddle. Now that was a lot of swats even for that time from what I understand that the story was, as the story was telling. He wanted to make the punishment hurt. So they're all, they all go out to recess and they come back in and somebody's lunch is missing. And they find the wrappers and stuff at this kid's table and they go, uh, did you eat that? And of course he couldn't say no because they had the wrappers right in front of him. What's he going to do? They go, no, I don't know where those came from. They just appeared. Yeah, I might have done that, Yancey. You're probably right. I might would have tried that, but it probably wouldn't have worked. But anyway, they go, okay, come on up here. Uh, you got to get your 10 swats. And the teacher thought he was going to make an example out of one of them, and none of the rest of them would ever do it again. So he thought, maybe this will be the only time I have to do this. Well, the kid came up there. He had this big, dingy overcoat on, and uh, you couldn't really see what he was like underneath that coat. Well, he took that coat off, and he was just skin and rails, looked like, and he had, had a good meal in two or three months. And there was no way he could physically take those 10 licks. No way. So an older boy in the back that was a senior goes, I'll take them for him. You know what? That kid didn't deserve those. That kid did nothing to get those licks. But he goes, I'll be the scapegoat and I'll take it for him. You know what? Jesus saw us down here. We couldn't do a thing about our sin. We couldn't do it for ourselves. There's no way we could handle the punishment. And he goes, I'll take it for him. He scapegoated himself for us. He became sin even though he had no sin to pay for himself. He, became, he took our sin and became sin for us. In 1 Peter 2 and 24, he who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. He bore our sins on his own body on the tree. He had to die in order for us to be able to live. There was no option of that for us. He had the choice. He could have chosen not to do it. But for us to live, he had to die. He had to take those sins and take them away. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, about sacrifices, God has always required a blood payment for sin. And Jesus paid that price on the cross that day. He shed his blood that way our sins would be forgiven and we would have peace with God. In Colossians 2 and 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, 
having nailed it to the cross. You know, they had to do that, that scapegoat thing every year, or else, I guess, or else our sins were just piled up. I guess that's how it worked. I mean, but every year they had to do it to take the sins away. They had to make animal sacrifices every year in order for their sins to roll forward to the next year. We don't have to worry about that. He paid the price once and wiped all that out. So now our Savior died once for us, and we don't have to worry about our sins ever again. We don't have to worry about sending out a goat, running out of town every year. We don't have to worry about that. That's not something that's required anymore. But what, having nailed it to his cross, you know today we wear crosses on chains and they're all real pretty. You know back then the cross was nothing to glorify. <laughs> I know why it's been, done that, been made pretty and all that because of what Jesus did on it. But in those days, the cross was a symbol of torture, punishment, guilt, embarrassment, and death. It wasn't something that people wore around their neck, made out of silver or gold with diamonds on it to make it pretty. It wasn't something to be admired. It was something to be feared. It was something people that wanted to know part of. Because believe me, the Romans had perfected on how to torture you on a cross. They knew how to do it. It was nothing people wanted any part of. They wanted to stay as far away from it as possible. It wasn't made out of the best smooth wood. It was something that was no fun to take part in. It wasn't something pretty that we decorate in our house. It was stained with blood. The blood of the accused and the blood of the innocent alike. It was stained with blood. And that blood it was stained with on that day gave us peace with God and gave us forgiveness from sins we had no other way out of. So now the question for you today is, what are you going to do with Jesus? You know what? It's your choice at this point. He's done his part. He's came to this earth, was born, lived his life, and made that sacrifice on our behalf. Now it's up to us. What are we going to do about it? And what I don't want you to do is make the mistake of thinking, oh, I've got, all, I got, I got a long time to think about that because you don't know how much time you have. There was a wreck up right near my concrete uh, plant this week. A 16-year-old kid lost their life. 16 years old. A whole life not lived. You don't know that you have all the time in the world. So you need to make the decision today what you're going to do with Jesus. Is he going to be your Savior? Is he going to be the one that brings you peace? Are you going to follow him regardless of what it costs you in this life or the reward you'll get in the next life? Because he's done his part. He came and he suffered and he died and he bled. He lived that perfect life for you. Now it's up to us, me and you, to do our part and say, yeah, I'm with Jesus. Now you can do the other thing and say, no, I'm not with Jesus. But if you do that, I want to recommend you read what God did with his enemies in the Old Testament and then decide if that's really what you want. And read what God has written in the New Testament talking about what he has prepared for his enemies. Because I don't think you really want a part of that either. So if you would, won't you make your decision as we stand and sing today?